0: how do you write a statute that says what is okay and what is not right? Like how do you rule out uh, saying that, for example, a reverse chronological algorithm isn't uh, something that would suddenly no longer be protected, for example. And I think that just really underlines how, you know, the, these questions are hard in part because they get to big, abstract issues like what what is the internet? What should the internet be? What is the relationship of the government with the internet? But also they turn on these very, very fiddly empirical questions that we don't have the answers to.
1: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, October 13th, 2022. The Supreme Court has granted cert in two cases, exploring the interactions between anti-terrorism laws and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and in a bloodless coup, I have seized control of Arbiters of Truth, Lawfare's occasional series on the information ecosystem. I did it because Quinta Juressic is joining us to discuss the cases along with her rational security compatriots, Scott R. Anderson and Alan Rosenstein. We all got together in the Virtual Jungle Studio to discuss the state of 230 law, what the Supreme Court has taken on, what the lower court did, and if there is a right answer here and what it might look like It's a technical conversation, inevitably, but I think we kept it intelligible. There's a lot of substance here. It's going to be one of the very big cases of the Supreme Court. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Arbiters of Truth, October 13th. The Supreme Court takes on 230. Okay, I want to start with... The news. There were two major cert grants, which may be thought of as one consolidated cert grant, depending on how you think about it. Quinta, uh, what happened and how should we think about it?
0: As you say, the court granted cert in two cases that are very interrelated. It's sort of procedurally complicated. But the the basic gist is the first case is uh, Gonzalez versus Google. The second is Twitter versus Tamne. And they're both coming out of the Ninth Circuit and were actually decided together in one opinion by the Ninth Circuit. Uh, Gonzalez concerns Section 230. So specifically whether or not platforms are shielded under Section 230 for civil liability for their use of recommendation algorithms. Um, essentially, the, the question is, you know, if, if you go onto Twitter, Twitter serves you up some tweets based on the specific algorithm, the mysterious uh, spices that they throw into their pot that nobody knows about. Are those recommendations third party content in the same way that, you know, the tweets that you see are third party content, which means that Twitter would be immune from civil suit, or are they something additional that Twitter is adding, which would mean that Twitter potentially wouldn't be immune under Section 230. So that's Gonzalez. um, And depending on which way the court goes, I think it it could really substantially change the scope of 230. And then the second case, Tamni, is related, touches on a very similar fact pattern, which I imagine we'll discuss, um, but is framed a little differently. Um, So this this case, the question presented has to do with the Anti-Terrorism Act and whether platforms can be sued, held liable under the Anti-Terrorism Act for content on their platforms produced by terrorist groups, I believe in this case, the the terrorist group in question is ISIS. Um, And so this sort of turns on some naughty issues of statutory interpretation. Again, uh, both the Anti-Terrorism Act and 230 were at issue in both of these cases in the lower courts, but they came up to the Supreme Court with the questions presented sort of divided in this way. So Gonzalez is presented to the court just about 230 and Tom. Is presented just about the anti-terrorism act.
1: All right, so I want to go take these questions in order, and let me start with Alan on the algorithmic application of two hundred and thirty. So, for those listeners who zone out when you hear the the numbers two hundred and thirty or the word section two hundred and thirty, Alan, uh, describe what two hundred and thirty is. And why it's a question whether the special sauce algorithm that Twitter adds to sort stuff on its platform is covered by two thirty or not
2: Ben, as always, I appreciate the softball
1: questions, so the hardest questions, man, are the ones where you just have to describe the law. <sighs>
2: it's brutal. So Section 230 was passed as part of the broader Communications Decency Act uh, of the mid-90s, which was largely uh, based on Congress's concern that the internet uh, was becoming a cesspool of pornography and that children in particular were going to be harmed by viewing it. The larger attempt to censor the internet was struck down by the Supreme Court under the First Amendment. But what remained was this kind of smallish provision that had been sort of tucked in near the end of the legislative process, uh, which we now call Section 230. Uh, And Section 230 does two main things. The first thing it does is it tries to encourage companies to moderate or censor or filter, however you want to describe it, to moderate content by making sure that if they moderate some content but not other content, they won't be held liable for the content that they don't moderate. So the idea is that and this was based on some cases that had happened you know, right before Section 230 was uh, enacted, courts were saying, look, companies, you can either not moderate anything, in which case you're not responsible for anything your users post, or if you're going to moderate anything, you are therefore responsible for what your users post. And that created an incentive for companies not to moderate anything. And for Congress, which again, in the mid-90s was terrified of companies not moderating pornography and other potentially harmful content, this was one goal of Section 230, which was to keep companies from having to make that choice, to make sure that if they moderated at all, that wouldn't then put them on the hook for the stuff they didn't moderate and incentivize them, therefore, to not moderate. That's one part of Section 230, or one goal of Section 230. The other goal of Section 230 was to just generally support what was then the nascent internet and the nascent digital public sphere. uh, And that was to make sure that companies didn't moderate when they didn't want to moderate, under the threat of being held liable for what their users did on their platforms. And here we get to what remains the most important part of Section 230, uh, subsection C1, which is just one sentence, but it has been the cause of uh, all of these cases and conflicts and controversies for 25 years now. Um, So I'll just read it out. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, right? So in particular, no platform shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of anyone else's information. That's the key statutory language. And so the question becomes, well, what does publisher in particular mean in this context? Uh, And there are basically two different ways of interpreting that word. One is to say, well, publisher, speaker, these are all just synonyms for the general idea that platforms should not be held liable for really anything that their users do, in particular, anything that their users say. This was the uh, holding of the first important case, it's called Zoran versus AOL, out of the Fourth Circuit uh, that was decided shortly after Section 230 was enacted and has sort of become the dominant interpretation of 230 um, and has led to companies successfully using 230 as a shield against lots and lots of liability. Right. The other way to look at it is to say, actually, this language should be read relatively narrowly. And when Congress says that these companies shall not be treated as publishers, they don't mean that they won't be liable at all. They just won't be liable as publishers. They can still be liable under different common law theories of secondary liability. In particular, something called distributor liability, which is the liability that, let's say, a bookstore has. Um, And the difference between a bookstore, which is treated uh, for liability purposes as a a distributor versus a newspaper, which is a publisher, is that a newspaper is responsible for the stuff it publishes in exactly the same way that that the author is responsible. Whereas a bookseller, for example, is only responsible for the stuff that it's been told, that it's been put on notice, is potentially defamatory or harmful. So the question then becomes, what exactly is Section 230 supposed to do, and how broad is the liability limitation? And then finally, when when it comes to how this should apply to algorithmic amplification or algorithmic selection, I think the fair answer is we just don't know. These categories that existed in the mid-90s didn't really take into account modern social media platforms. They certainly didn't take into account the Fact that these platforms were no longer isolated kind of peripheral bulletin boards, but are now instead these behemoths that totally control the digital public sphere. And so I think there's just no matter how much you squint at the language, fundamental ambiguity um, as to how 230 should apply. Now, I think given that ambiguity, there are some interesting questions about how statutory interpretation should operate. We should get back to that. Um, But I think fundamentally it's an ambiguous issue.
1: So, Scott, let's uh, describe the other issue before diving in even deeper on the one that Alan described. Uh, Surely being treated as a publisher does not include uh, violating the criminal statute that forbids giving services to a designated foreign terrorist organization, yet the Ninth Circuit held that Facebook is immune from a suit under under the Anti-Terrorist Act. And by the way, so did has every other court that has considered this question for uh, allowing ISIS to gin up stuff on its platform. How does 230 interact with the Anti-Terrorism Act?
3: Well, so... It's an interesting question generally, and then there's one specific way it interacts with that issue in the case here. This is the Tamna case that uh, was taken up By the court alongside Gonzalez v. Google. Let me start with that. We can take a step back to kind of other sorts of considerations. In this particular case, which again was decided by the Ninth Circuit alongside the Gonzalez case and actually a third case, all three of which were cases uh, involving acts of terrorism overseas that people then sued major uh, social media companies for allegedly facilitating in various ways, usually through recruitment, advertising, communications, terrorist activities by designated foreign terrorist organizations. In this particular case, the lower court resolved the dispute not on the basis of 230 liability, but on the basis of a what it saw as a shortcoming in the plaintiff's pleadings under the Anti-Terrorism Act, and that is the cause of action they were pursuing their action under. The Anti-Terrorism Act, or specifically its civil liability provision, that's 18 U.S.C. 2333 for anyone reading along at home, uh, is a kind of long-standing civil liability provision that is incredibly broad. It basically says, look, if you are a victim of terror act of international terrorism, which it defines to basically mean anything that might be illegal, have an element of violence, and for lack of a better way to kind of summarize it, intended to have a political effect. You can hold the perpetrators or anybody involved in that act responsible for it, it's actually very vague on what the exact relationship has to be, responsible for treble damages. So pretty large of money, that means triple damages, which when you're talking about acts of death that often arise from terrorism can mean tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even more. Uh, awards of damages and dollars. And so it's one of these provisions we see a ton of litigation around because it creates a very fertile atmosphere for people to bring novel claims because it provides very large awards of sums uh, and is very broadly worded and applies to all sorts of different acts, including most notably material support of terrorism, which it kind of incorporates by definition as a potential basis for liability under this provision, right? Then in 2016, Congress came along with a law called JASTA, which people who have been reading and listening along with Lawfare will be familiar with this law. This is a law that did a bunch of things, but most relevant here, it actually amended the civil liability provision to clarify that it actually did provide for not just primary liability, meaning actual liability for the acts of international terrorism that it applies to, but also applies to provides secondary liability or aiding and abetting liability for those acts, meaning that if an individual you know, aided or abetted an act of international terrorism, even if they didn't perpetrate it themselves, they also could similarly be held liable under that provision. This had been a point of dispute, uh, and there had been a lot of litigation around this, but uh, kind of the leading courts had only decided that secondary liability did not directly exist within the statute of provision as originally written. So JASA came along and added it in. However, it's set on a condition. It was only in relation, uh, most primarily here to situations there is knowing of substantial support, and then provided to a foreign terrorist organization as a designated entity, meaning certain specific terrorist organizations, not just anybody who might have committed an act of international terrorism who's not designated as an FTO. In this particular case, what Twitter? That's seeking a petition for certain this case is complaining about, is that the Ninth Circuit came along and reversed the district court's opinion and said, essentially, look, the two big elements here that we the district court thought you didn't meet, that we think you do meet, are that, one, we think you had reason to know that ISIS, in this particular case, was using your platform. There are all these media reports about ISIS using Twitter and other social media platforms that were also involved in this case, uh, you know, though they're, they're not kind of like the named petitioner you guys all knew from media reports that ISIS was using your platforms for a variety of recruiting recruiting actions. And in this case, the Twitter uh, and these other companies came forward, particularly Twitter, with basically arguments saying, look, we took steps to try and take down content when we were aware of them. Uh, And so we did not know that this was happening. If we knew a terrorist group was using our platform, in fact, we would have tried to take that action down. But there is dispute as to how exactly... what exactly Twitter engaged in, and in particular because of the, the procedural posture of this case, how the original plaintiffs alleged in their complaint what Twitter did and the extent to which they actually could articulate a basis by which Twitter would know this action was ongoing, even though they did take some sort of remedial measures. And then on top of that, Twitter also says, hey, we also are only being alleged that we generally supported this FTO, ISIS, not that we had any sort of relationship between what we did and the actual violent act, the actual act of terrorism that resulted in the tragic death of these individuals That's the underlying basis for this lawsuit. The Ninth Circuit, however, again, said, look, we think you had reason to know from these media accounts that there's at least some knowledge of um, these sorts of actions. And we said, really, here, the violent act underlying this isn't the specific act of violence that killed these individuals. It's the donation to a designated foreign terrorist organization. It is the support for that whole organization, Uh, not just its act, even it's just its terrorist activities or the specific act of terrorism. And those two things combined means that you actually can be uh, at least on its face potentially held liable under this provision meaning the complaint against you can't be dismissed on the face of the law it's going to have to go forward in litigation and litigate it out that proves to be a potentially uh, expensive proposition for twitter which is why they've appealed they're also make the point that a lot of companies will fall under the scope of such a broad interpretation of potential liability if they're providing services to broadly available people and for that reason they've appealed these other tech companies have gotten on board with this appeal
1: all right so quinta is it fair to say that the Ninth Circuit's position here basically boils down to we don't care if you promote the terrorist content, push it to the top of everybody's feed so that all they see is ISIS content. Uh, They are still immune. And by the way, you know, as long as we have some basis to say, we, hey, we remove it when we see it. It doesn't really matter if we're actively promoting it, even from a designated foreign terrorist organization. The Ninth Circuit takes the position that basically you don't even really have to litigate those questions. You just kind of have to say, 230, uh, we're done. Is that a, a fair, unfair summary or an unfair, unfair summary?
0: I'm going to go, well, it, I'm not sure whether it's fair, unfair, 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 but it's definitely unfair. I think that if, if nothing else, because of the kind of the the three different decisions we get from three different judges on the panel. So there's a, a majority opinion by uh, Judge Kristen, a concurrence by Judge Berson, and a concurrence in part and dissent in part from Judge Gould. And the commonality between all of them is that clearly none of the judges on the panel are particularly happy with the current state of 230 jurisprudence. Um, and the difference between them is really how they try to grapple with that. Uh, so Judge Kristen, who's who's writing for the majority, essentially says: look, you know, I, I am not particularly comfortable with how broad 230's protections are, but you know, under precedent in this circuit, particularly under the roommates.com precedent. It is simply the case that this kind of algorithmic amplification is covered by Section 230. Judge Bresin concurring sort of really underlines that and essentially says, I really think that we we need to, as a country, rethink 230, essentially is calling for, for this to be you know, taken seriously as a societal problem. I, I need to go back and double check whether the concurrence actually asks for the Supreme Court to to take it up. Um, but it's it's really essentially saying, you know, I agree with the majority that there's not really any other way we can come out here, but I don't like it. And then in dissent, Judge Gould is essentially saying, I think that, you know, I don't like it either. And I think there's a little more play in the joints here. I do think we have flexibility under existing jurisprudence and under the circuit's precedent to kind of split off algorithmic amplification and say, this is actually not something that that is covered by 230. And you actually see in the uh, petition for Saturari and Gonzalez that the petitioners do point to this this sort of division among the judges on the panel in arguing that the Supreme Court should take this up for, for cert. So it's definitely true that, you know, there are some cases in which judges kind of look at a 230 claim, even a claim that's made on really brutal facts, and say, you know, tough luck, see you later. Uh, this is not one of those cases. I and mean, whatever you Think of the reasoning of the panel, it's clear that they're all seriously wrestling with this. All right. So
1: let's, uh, I want to ask you guys one more question about each of the substantive issues before we turn to how the Supreme Court is likely to think about this mess. Alan, why should algorithmic amplification standards be? considered, what's the argument that that should be considered covered by 230? A publisher doesn't, you know, doesn't algorithmically make you read X book rather than Y book. It's actually not, the amplification of content within the platform is not something that a traditional publisher does I suppose you can analogize it to the New York Times putting something on the first page rather than on the fourth page. But what's the argument that the language treat as a publisher covers Twitter's decision to uh, advance algorithmically terrorist content?
2: Well, I I think it's just what you just said, which is that, Traditional publishers like the New York Times make these sorts of decisions, and so if if you're if you're also holding liable these tech companies for what they want to put on their quote unquote front page or your front page, right? Because we all have different front page. That's the whole point. Then then that should be treated similarly. I mean, the the, the problem, and again, I, this is I think the core issue in this debate is is we are trying to take concepts that existed in the 1990s. And apply them to platforms and to technologies that no one could have imagined, both in their details of how they ran uh, and also in their size and scope so you know we we can sit here and we we can do what law professors and lawyers do all day long and try to analogize you know past law to to new facts but I think the problem is that the answer is we just we just don't know there's no right answer here or or rather you can make good answers and I think from what Quinta just said about the Ninth Circuit struggling, you can make good answers on every position. And really, I think it comes down less to, again, the parsing of this concept that just doesn't fit anymore, and more to what do you think the actual effects will be of this or that liability scheme. And what do you want them to be? And what do you want them to be? And, And the problem is that 230 makes this doubly difficult. The first is that um, again, it's a 25-year-old statute. We we don't exactly know what everyone thought it meant and what people wanted. And even if we did know, how do you apply it 25 years later? And so much has changed. And second, the statute is is a little bit at war with itself. And again, this is something I think is underappreciated. The statute is trying to do two things. It's one, trying to encourage companies to content moderate, which is to say, it's trying to encourage them to censor. At the same time, it is trying to encourage them to. Not worry about what their users post so as not to censor too much. So it's not even clear you can look at 230 and figure out what it's even trying to do. So you have these double ambiguity. And again, I I think this suggests an approach that the court could take, and we can talk about that a bit later. But there is no answer here.
1: So, Scott, to what extent is the Tomnik case even a 230 matter at all? And to what extent is it really just a statutory interpretation question regarding the Anti-Terrorism Act.
3: So, so the Tamda case is not a 230 case. The Tamda case is a, a argument in the alternative that Twitter is making uh, along with, with the involvement and support of some of these other tech companies, specifically about the interpretation of the ATA. What happened in this case is that Gonzalez, uh, the, the plaintiffs originally in Gonzalez, petitioned for certiorari to the Supreme Court, basically saying, no, we think 230 shouldn't extend here. We're going to bring this up to the Supreme Court. Then Twitter came in in the Tomna case and said, well, look, if we have agreed with the plaintiffs in our case that as long as the petition for cert is denied in Gonzalez, we're going to dismiss our action voluntarily because the plaintiffs, sounds like very reasonably, agree that if the Ninth Circuit's view that 230 applies to these other cases is upheld, then it's also going to do away with their case, and there's no reason to continue litigating it. But they said if you grant cert in Gonzalez, then, in fact, you should grant cert in this case too so that we can argue out this ATA issue that then will be dispositive to this case in the event you end up shrinking 230 protections in a way that impact the potential disposition here. And not only that, this case actually intersects with two other cases that were up for potential cert over the summer. Both of those came out of, I believe both were out of the second circuit and dealt with a very similar interpretive issue regarding those aspects of aiding and abetting liability, what constitutes knowledge, what constitutes how close relationship you need to have to the underlying act. And in both those cases here, Twitter said, look, if you grant certain these cases you should hold this case and resolve it in line with those other cases in fact the Supreme Court didn't grant certain those cases it actually left in place the appellate court determinations that's agreed with a narrow reading of the ATA contrary to what the Ninth Circuit did in this case so it's hard to read the tea leaves 100 percent here you know there are re- there's lots of gray areas and ways the court could view 230 or the ATA differently but in my thinking the fact that the court, you know, took up Gonzales and then t- took up this case, strongly suggests, A, it's doing what Twitter asked for. That's not unreasonable. But, but B, that at least the four judges that took up the Gonzales case probably think there's a, non, a non-zero chance that the court's going to end up shrinking 230 away that may bear on this case. Because they did, would not have taken this case up to resolve the underlying ATA issue here, or at least it's very unlikely, because they've already turned down two opportunities to do that more squarely just a few months ago so i suspect that the ata case here may prove dispositive twitter probably seems likely to win or get most of what it wants in its argument about a narrower view reversing the ninth circuit because that's much closer to the views that the supreme court let stand in uh, out of the second circuit earlier this summer but that wouldn't even be relevant or necessary unless they were going to seriously, really seriously considering shrinking 230 protections. And so that's that's kind of how this fits in here in terms of tea leaves and, and w- when this determination becomes relevant and why we're considering it now in relation to this case, even though it's a totally separate statutory regime.
1: All right. So I want to turn now to how the Supreme Court is likely to think about this. Uh, Scott, you just gave us a sense of that with respect to uh, the ATA question, but since the ATA question's relevance hinges on the 230 question, let's start there as a preliminary matter. Quinta, what do we know about the individual justice? The Supreme Court has never interpreted 230, much to the frustration of people like me. It has had a lot of opportunity to do so. Most recently, uh, in the Grinder case in in the Second Circuit, uh, what do we know about the individual justices and their attitudes towards Section two hundred and thirty?
0: I think it's fair to say that we know the most about the views of Justice Thomas uh, because he wrote out a dissent from denial of cert earlier in earlier in twenty twenty two. Where the, the Supreme Court declined to take up another case that would have allowed it to consider Section 230, where he essentially said he believes that uh the statute should be interpreted far more narrowly than courts have come to read it, um, and really called on the court to take up another case. And indeed, um the Gonzalez cert petition essentially explicitly says, great news, Justice Thomas, here we are with your case that can allow you to consider whether to narrow 230. Um, so I think his position, there's there's obviously, you know, the, the dissent from denial cert was only uh, three pages, so there's a lot of ambiguity left, but I think it's it's pretty clear uh, where he might stand. With the other justices, I think there's there's more of a, a question. Um, I mean, I'll be curious if, uh, if, Alan, if you have any read here, We know, at least, uh, we can kind of uh, read some tea leaves in what the court did with this case out of Texas, Net Choice v. Paxton, which has to do with a a Texas social media law that would significantly restrict uh, platforms' ability to moderate content, um, and which seems like it it may well also wind up before the court this term, along with a a similar case uh, concerning a Social media law that's sort of similar but different in, in important ways from Florida, and in that case, we know that the the justices voted five four to essentially put the put the law on hold um, while the litigation was. Uh, continuing, and so the the four who were dissenting uh, that would be Justice Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and interestingly, Kagan. Um, so there, that's kind of an interesting lineup. Kagan is a little bit of a, a dark horse there, and I think that suggests that you know this may not fall down neatly along ideological lines. Um, obviously, the the procedural posture there was very different. The issues raised are somewhat different, but I think it does give us a little bit of the of a glimpse into uh, the potential chaos that we might see unfold.
2: Alan, does that sound right to you? It it does. I, I this is one of these issues where I j- I just don't think there's obvious predictions that one can make other than a few justices maybe here and there. I mean, it's one that doesn't have an obvious frankly, political valence or partisan valence, which, you know, depressingly has become a pretty good proxy for being able to predict votes. Um, There are good reasons for folks on, you know, any side of the political spectrum to, uh, you know, try to extend and strengthen 230 protections or, on the other hand, to try to limit them. It's also such a technically complex issue. You know, anyone who has spent any time digging into 230, I mean, at some point, you just end up needing a bottle of Advil next to you because it just causes your head to hurt. And in these kinds of technical opinions, you can end up with these very fractured compositions of the court because everyone does the statutory interpretation in their own way.
1: I don't know, Alan. Don't you think that, that a bunch of textualists will all read Treat as a publisher <laughs> uh, to, to mean what its plain text suggests?
2: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. I just, I, I think this is one of these issues where it's just, it's very hard to, it's very hard to predict. I I, I honestly, I have no idea how this will, 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 will come out.
1: So I want to advance a prediction uh, that is in line with what Scott, uh, the prediction Scott just alluded to. And first of all, have Scott respond to it, but, and then have the two of you as well. So first of all, there with the exception of the Fifth Circuit's recent voyage into insanity in the net choice case, uh, there really is no conflict in the circuits over the meaning of 230. They've all interpreted it quite broadly, led by the Ninth Circuit. And if the uh Supreme Court were satisfied with that as a disposition and a meaning of the law, there would be no reason to grant cert in this case in the first instance. So the fact that four justices think there is uh, some reason to take this case at all reflects, I think, in my judgment anyway, uh, an instinct that there is something defective or overbroad about the consensus view again from which the fifth circuit is a weird outlier in not thinking that 230 needs to be evaluated at all at least on a preemption basis so my question is and scott get us started on this isn't it obvious that the supreme court is took this case in order to you know, reviewed de novo, basically every circuit court opinion that's ever been written about the basic scope and meaning of section 230. So I don't know if I would
3: go quite that far.
1: I, I, I think it is- You know, you know it's like, pretty... like I try to be provocative and throw stuff out there, and you guys are always so annoyingly responsible in
3: response. Well, we'll see how responsible we feel about this at the back end. But <laughs> going into it, I might not go quite as far as that. I mean, here, I do think we can be pretty confident. Obviously, four judges wanted to grant insert on this. They wanted to take up the issue. They could have let it sit and agreed. I don't think there actually is that much of a, a circuit split here. So they're being a little proactive. But it is a moment where despite the lack of circuit split, you have very vocal people expressing discontent with this kind of position. Um, We had uh, the late Judge Katzman in the Second Circuit in Force B Facebook write a pretty lengthy dissent that kind of laid out why this goes a little too far when you talk about these sort of algorithmic things. Really, the idea being that algorithms are producing original content out of user-contributed content, and, and that's actually a more of a different sort of act. That's not what we originally envisioned when we were talking about this. Um, we saw Judge Berzon do the same thing in the lower court in the Ninth Circuit in this case. And, and notably, these are two kind of like liberal lion judges, right? Like centrist in their own ways, but like notable left-leaning Democratic appointee judges expressing similar views, somewhat differently, but similar views to some extent by Justice Thomas and some other folks. So I think there's a sense here that there's interest in seeing court open up the realm of possibilities. But does that mean the court's going to kick the door down in terms of, what actually is available i'm just not i'm not sure that's that's right that they're going to slash and burn their way through all the existing precedent including because you know other than just the sheer reliance interest that we've seen kind of built up by tech companies in this place tech companies are so integral to a lot of our day-to-day interactions i think even our justices who are not probably the most online people on the face of the planet have a strong sense of this that you know, big big changes. They, I think, they have to know could be really disruptive to services that are pretty essential, and that they seem to acknowledge. So, you know, if I had to guess, frankly, my guess is that, especially because you know it's the the four judges that have granted cert need to find at least one other vote, and I think you have a lot of judges in the conservative wing that are hesitant to take bigger sort of swings on this particular issue set. I kind of suspect you'll see a narrow ruling that may not even change the outcome in this case necessarily. I'm I'm less confident it is, because I'm actually not sure this is the strongest set of facts that you could come forward to challenge the limits, to push the limits of 230 liability. I think there are other cases out there that, that might yet come up, but to signal that there are limits to that, that some logic along this trajectory on the spectrum from strictly user submitted to user submitted, but heavily adjusted by our own formulas, conduct, and activities, somewhere on that spectrum, 230 immunities begin to fade off. And that opens the door for more judicial innovation, experimentation, and creative litigation. That's going to be very expensive and annoying for the tech companies, but it is the sort of, you know, Fostering of the development of the law that Supreme Court sometimes turned to in these more complicated situations, and of course, Congress is always also always free to step in and clarify things if they so choose.
2: So, so I, I agree with what Scott said in terms of the court setting the stage for the development of the law, because again, you know, we've been operating with a interpretation of two hundred and thirty that was really set in the mid nineteen nineties, and we've been doing that through the growth of this amazingly impactful communications technology. It does need to be updated. um, And by that, I mean the fundamental compromise that seems to have been struck in the 1990s, which is, look, this internet thing is nascent and it's kind of cool. So let's just protect it. And the easiest way of protecting that is by removing as much liability from platforms as possible, that that bargain, which may well have been the right bargain at the time, may or may not be the right bargain today. And so then the question becomes, well, who should decide what the right bargain should be today? Should it be the courts or should it be Congress? I'm old fashioned. It strikes me that these are exactly the sort of policy arguments that should be decided not by courts in the first instance, but by the legislature. And so if there are enough people on the Supreme Court that agree with me on that, then a logical step for the Supreme Court would actually be to restrict 230 liability protections quite a bit. Because what that would do is that would put the burden back on the technology companies, to the giant platforms. Uh, and then they would have an incentive to go to Congress and say, this is an untenable situation. We need to renegotiate 230. And then we can have that process where all the stakeholders come to the table, all the lobbyists come to the table, right? And we decide, okay, we've had this liability scheme for the last 25 years. What is going to be our liability scheme for the next 25 years? And maybe it'll be different. Maybe it'll be the same. Um, But it'll certainly then have to be rewritten in, in more clear language and language that better tracks what companies are actually doing right now. So that questions as fundamental as what liability, if any, should companies hold for algorithmic decisions will not rely on some tortured, implicit reading of the statutory text. But there will actually be an answer that is clear in the new kind of section 230 version two that comes out of that process.
0: Yeah. I count me nervous about that outcome. Not because I think you're, you're necessarily wrong that Congress is the actor that should weigh in here, but because what I think we would be facing under those circumstances is sort of a prolonged period of chaos where everybody tries to figure out what on earth they're potentially liable for and how, and We know what that looks like because it happened in the wake of FOSTA, the 2018 law that carved out a hole from the 230 liability shield for certain content relating to sex trafficking. And what happened was platforms essentially fell over themselves to censor material that had previously been allowed. And that had a lot of negative follow-on effects, not only just for you know the vibrancy of discourse on the internet, but it materially affected people's lives. People lost access to resources that they really needed, um, and there's a lot of evidence that sex workers, in particular,ly were materially harmed and put in danger as a result. Now, that's a you know that's an extreme case, but I do think it's a reminder of. Just how concrete the follow-on effects can be when platforms are sort of suddenly plunged into this space where they don't actually know what the liability regime is. And I do think that's worth keeping in mind. I mean, related to that, my big hesitation about the Gonzalez case is that it's just not clear to me, you know, if you start saying, okay, you know, some some level of algorithmic amplification is Uh, not covered by 230 protection, where you can draw the line there between an algorithm or or some level of platform involvement that is protected and some level that, that isn't. The cert petition tries to draw this line between, and I quote, a system that provides to a user information that the user is actually seeking. So their example is a search engine and quote, a system utilized by an internet company to direct at a user information such as a recommendation that the company wants a user to have suggesting that the former would be protected by 230, but the latter wouldn't. I frankly don't really know how you draw that division in in practice, especially just because there's so much content in the world and on the internet. And so much of what we rely on these platforms for is, in part, sorting information to present it to us in a useful way. That doesn't mean that on the far extreme, there aren't circumstances in which you know potentially some level of algorithmic amplification i could imagine could be not covered by 230 but just that the the question of where you draw that line i think is a really tricky one it's going to be a tricky one for courts it's going to be a tricky one if congress tries to draft statutory language ben i know you've you've thought about this you know it's actually really difficult to figure out like how do you write a statute that says what is okay and what is not right like how do you rule out uh, saying that, for example, a reverse chronological algorithm isn't uh, something that would s- suddenly no longer be protected, for example. And I think that just really underlines how, you know, the, these questions are hard in part because they get to big abstract issues like what what is the Internet? What should the Internet be? What is the relationship of the government with the Internet? But also they turn on these very, very fiddly empirical questions that we don't have the answers to. All right.
1: So, as a person, as Quinta alluded, who suggested before Clarence Thomas that Section two hundred and thirty had been uh, wildly overinterpreted by the circuit courts and that the Supreme Court or Congress should step in to remedy that, uh, I want to first of all say that I do think Clarence Thomas is a is a Johnny come lately to this position and. But without uh, joking aside, I I do think we're gonna we're gonna see likely see a as Scott suggested earlier, uh, and as Alan suggested, a a set of groupings of justices that really defy ideological category here. So we are a group that is not especially defiant of ideological category. We're, you know, all. Moderate of one sort or another, so I'm just going to lay out my view of what the the right answer on this is, and uh have each of you lay out your view of what you think the Supreme Court should do or what you would vote to do uh, if you were a member of the Supreme Court and uh in my case, that is to say, I believe that section two thirty protects or should be read to protect. Uh, against traditional publication liability that is defamation, uh, obviously not copyright infringement because of the DMCA, but, you know, uh, uh, defamation torts, stuff related very specifically to the substance of content for which they did not moderate and nothing else. And I think the the error in the judicial interpretation of 230 was to say that what 230 does is it immunizes the process of running a platform uh, as distinct from publishing voices that you don't have editorial control over or that you don't exercise editorial control over. Scott, what do you think, if you were a justice, how would you handle
3: uh, this matter? You know, it is a very hard question and I don't want to understate that. Um, but it strikes me that, you know, all of the sort of policy decisions exist along a spectrum where on the one hand, hand you can imagine a scenario where, you know, there's a, a, a extreme hypothetical quite deliberately where a tech company were to, you know, take 10 second clips from a variety of videos and slap them together in a new product that maybe inadvertently said, join ISIS, right? <laughs> right, Or did something else illegal that created some sort of tort. And on the one hand, you could say, well, yeah, they're just presenting by virtue of some algorithm meant to accomplish you know, marketing or some other purpose, uh, something that people would find appealing. They weren't actually consciously throwing things together. This is all user-contributed content. And yet it obviously isn't, right? They've obviously... Like, you know, a serial killer or a kidnapper in a movie taken, clipped out the individual letters from a magazine and rearranged in a way to send their own message. That's on one far extended the spectrum. I don't think even people, people can see why 230 very well would not or might not apply to that. And then on the other side, you see the necessity of engaging in some degree of editing and selection and curating. Because you have to organize knowledge and information to make things usable for people. You have to present and pick, well, if I'm going to only let people have access to every tweet in the world, how do we organize that? Well, maybe I'll suggest certain ones to people so they can discuss it. Maybe I'll let them pick which friends they want to see and specific terms they want to hear. And it can't all just be user generated. You've got to provide some guidance on that because it's too many options, too much information otherwise. And so you can't, it's hard to imagine that Congress would have authorized Protection from liability intended to foster an effective internet, even of the type that exists in the 1990s, and not understood a need to protect those sorts of basic conduct. So, in my mind, I, I suspect the product, you know, the line begins to gravitate around the kind of mosaic theory argument we saw in Gonzalez and I think it was in Force V Facebook and a few other places where you're really seeing cases and where people can really tie the underlying liability to products that engage in a pretty high degree of repackaging, formatting, and presentation. I think it's a bigger problem for outlets like Facebook where a Facebook page. Like in a lot of ways, or particularly a Facebook stream or thread, actually is not is a bunch of different users generated content sliced up and put together in a particular way. Less true of YouTube as clearly, although you certainly have the suggestions and whatnot, but YouTube nonetheless the core content product is in fact like usually user submitted almost entirely, except for maybe ads. So I actually think there are lines that can be drawn here, but I suspect lower, you know, the Supreme Court's gonna say lower courts figure it out. Uh, and we're going to see a lot of messy litigation and circuit splits around that, and it's going to end up boiling down to some line around motive and degree of substantial interaction it might have something to do with you know, when they're acting in good faith or when they're acting to advance their own interests. I don't know where that exact line is. It strikes me that carves out the zone where the right line is, but I don't know how exactly you reach it. That's not unusual in these cases. And lower courts do mess around with messy statutes and principles of law all the time uh, and arrive at vaguely similar answers eventually through the messy process of litigation. Justice Quinta, how would you rule?
0: See, the problem here is that I'm, I'm fundamentally too cautious and indecisive to ever be in a position to, to, <laughs> to have to make a, a call here. I mean, I think it's it's much easier for me to say, you know, here are the problems with this outcome. Here are the problems with that outcome, right? I mean, one one issue that I haven't even flagged it and that I do think is, is worth noting is that platforms use techniques like amplification or downranking to limit the spread of potentially dangerous material as a kind of interim way between leaving something up and taking it down. And so in a weird way, uh, limiting 230 protections here might actually limit their ability to moderate some of the bad stuff that we really don't want. So I, I don't know. Um, I think I I'm, I'm, would gravitate toward the the most cautious approach here. Um, I'm not, frankly, not sure what that is. And the problem, of course, is that the current state of things isn't particularly rosy either. Um, I don't think we're necessarily in the best of all possible world, but I'm not really sure what a better world looks like when it comes to 230.
1: Quinta promises to dissent from whatever the majority does. Or write a tortured concurrence. (laughs) Yes. Concurring in part and dissenting in part. Alan Rosenstein, Justice of the Supreme Court, how do you come down here?
2: I think that there's no legally obviously right answer here. And so the question is, how do you get the political branches who I think are best placed to decide what is socially optimal in terms of a liability regime? um, How do you get them involved? And I think doctrinally, the way you do that is you say that, look, we are going to interpret you know limitations on background common law rules narrowly, especially where the people that benefit from those limitations are politically and financially very powerful actors. Uh, because if they really want to carve out liability protections from themselves, they can go and they can have start that fight with with Congress. Um, and so, you know, I, I I might concur in the judgment written by you know Justice Ben, in the sense that I might agree with. Ben's proposal. But it's not because I think there's necessarily that's because that's the right proposal. Um, But because that I think is a, a narrow way of reading 230, that I think preserves the part of 230 we can all agree was actually intended. And as to the part that we're not sure was intended, just make the political process deal with it.
1: We are going to leave it there with those decisive rulings from uh, the justices of rational security. Scott Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, Alan Rosenstein, thank you all for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the great Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. And folks, if you like the Arbiters of Truth series, uh, which Quinto will seize control of in retaliation for my imposition uh, shortly, you should become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do that at Lawfare's Patreon page, patreon.com lawfare. You can also, if you choose, subscribe to Arbiters of Truth as a standalone podcast. Get it wherever fine podcasts are served. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.